Welcome to the Underwater Sunshine Podcast. I am your host, Adam Duritz, and I'm with your host... James Campion. My friend, James Campion. How are you? I am particularly good. I was just looking up something on the Rascals. Ooh. Uh, I did want to start this one. Uh, I really appreciate we did, we did our last one on, on me finishing my book, Accidentally Like a Martyr, which will be out in June. Plug, plug, plug. But I had an interesting thing happen to me this week. Because it's so harrowing to finish a book, and because you put so much effort into it, it's very myopic for a long time. And because you and I have been working on our thing now since October of 2016, more or less, and I have been working on that as well. I don't know why I was reminded of this, but I had a little bit of a writer's crush. You ever have a, I'm sure you've had a musician's crush. I found this editor uh, through social media, and her name is Molly Shulman, and she's done great work. I've done some research on her. She's a one-woman show. She's edited. She's, she's working on a novel now. And I was happened to be making my way down here a couple weeks ago, and I stopped at Boston Noble to pick up a book from my wife. Actually, I went to a bookstore, which was, ha, that was revelatory. And, and I get this, this pot, you know, whatever she sent down on social media, I said, hey, it's Edgar Allan Poe's birthday today. And we're going to his party. Do you want to come? No. <laughs> Edgar's having everyone over the house. Exactly. No, it didn't go that far. But I'm giving a discount on my freelance editing services. And I thought, well, this is serendipitous because I am almost in between starting another project proper with you and me and the Zevon book is going into the rearview mirror. I had been working on a novel. And you mentioned this last, and this was sparked it. You mentioned this in the last podcast, how, how you were working on uh, Marjorie, uh, Dreams of Horses. And then 15 years later, it became... You know, something else or it morphed or you never finished it and you couldn't fit it on the first record for whatever reason. And I had been working on this novel for 16, 17 years. And I stopped leaving it, stopping, changing it. And I hadn't looked at it in a while. I said, you know what? I would love a fresh set of eyes to look at this and see if it resurrects it, see if I can get excited about it. And so this week I've been reading through it and I've been really, really motivated to do it. And it's been this thing, I can't say it's haunted me, but it's an unfinished, I'm not a fiction writer. So for me to do that is a big deal. It's a weird... I wrote, I wrote one novel, and it's called Why, and I think it failed miserably because <laughs> it's got first novelitis. You know, it's got too many ideas in it and everything else. And it, it always gets me to wonder that... And you mentioned about Marjorie, but it always gets me to wonder that when you work on something... Like right now you said before I came here that you're working out some songs possibly or just working on material that may end up being a song. I'm wondering if that kind of thing sticks with you if you feel like you need to to see it through to make it real or you just kind of to abandon it because I've never felt like I, I don't want this book to see the light of day but I really feel like I need to finish it and, and meeting this woman through cyberspace I really feel like I, I've, I've been able to, to revisit the, the idea of it so I'm just wondering as a songwriter if that ever comes up to you or you're inspired by some outside source that inspires you to go ahead and write. That happens a lot, you know. I mean, I I, I can remember one night where I was at home watching. Uh, you know, all it takes to inspire me is something that moves me. It doesn't necessarily have anything to do with what I end up writing. Like I remember sitting at home when years, this is years ago, twenty, thirty years ago, and uh, watching Doctor Zhivago, and being so blown away by the film. I think I'd seen it once before, but I was in my parents' house. I don't think anyone else was in town. It was just me. 
And I watched all of Dr. Zhivago, and it was so intensely moving. And when it finished, I got up and went to the other room and wrote ranking. It just happens that way sometimes. I don't know if it's... I'm not sure what you're talking about, the other part about feeling like you have to finish things or you don't have to finish things. Uh, you know, but I like that. I want to be writing songs. I want to finish them. I want to make records in general in life. I don't know that I feel like I have to finish any particular thing on any particular day. Often if I don't finish something, this was true for most of my life. If I, I would get inspired on something, if I didn't finish it that sitting, which a sitting could be uh, 40 minutes or an hour, or it could be eight hours. Uh, if I didn't finish it, I, I just generally assumed it wasn't good enough. And I threw it out. I stopped doing that with the last record where, where some of the stuff where I was changing the way I was writing and, I I started to realize that these pieces that I had been really excited about that I was halfway through that I'd been writing for a couple of years at that point, it wasn't that they weren't good. It's just they were really different from what I'd been writing. And so I would get into them and then I would start to doubt them because they were subject matter was different, you know, whether it was use of humor or a little more bizarre. For whatever reason, I was abandoning these things I really liked. And it wasn't until I started playing the them or the ideas of them for Dan and Millard and Immer, and their reactions to them were so strong that it kind of brought me back to how I felt when I started writing them. So, you know, I finished them. Songs like Scarecrow, uh, Elvis Went to Hollywood, Palisades Park. You know, I had most of the music for Palisades Park and didn't get anywhere on the lyric. I was writing it for that play, for Black Sun, and I, you know, sort of just had it sitting there. And then as we went along doing the record, I kept thinking about this piece of music I had and how much I loved it. And then I went to write it and did. You know, so, you know that was kind of a change for me of like, usually if I got an idea I liked, I did it all right then. I've sort of abandoned the need to do that the last few years. I just want to make sure I get it down and I can come back to it whenever. I don't know about the pressures of it, you know. I do think, you know, when you do anything publicly, you're going to give birth to a ton of expectation. That's just natural. And I think it's a complete and utter waste of your time to pay any attention to it at all. Because it's just the reactions of people who like or hate your stuff, but had nothing to do with the fact that you created it in the first place. So it's great that they love it, and it's fine if they hate it. But neither of those things is any reason had anything to do with why you created it in fact when you were creating it they'd never heard it so they had no reaction to it you know and now you've created it and they have a reaction and they have expectations about the next thing but that's their expectation and whether you meet their expectation or not is completely coincidental unless you want to sit around thinking about it and then it's not but i think that's a mistake because you started writing because you were moved to write about things and you're going to write again because you're moved to write about things because it's what you're interested in, and that's the most powerful force behind it. Someone wanting you to write something is a particularly piss-poor reason to do it. For instance, why would you have any motivation to do it? Unless it's like work for hire, in which case, yeah, there's a motivation to do but it. Even that, paid. Writing, someone asked me that, that too. I remember when, uh, when they were interviewing the gentleman who wrote um, The Art of the Deal with Donald Trump. They yeah. said, oh, he was coming out saying negative things about the president So prior to that when he was running for president. And they said... You know, uh, he's like, I really shouldn't have done this, and blah, blah, blah. And, of course, he got paid well for it. So, of course, the people would ask me, would you do that? And I'm not really, of course, for the money you do it. 
But I'm saying it's you spend so much time with a subject, you spend so much energy writing, it's a very hard, arduous, isolating thing to do. It's very hard to do it unless you absolutely love it so you can get over those humps. Yeah, and I, but I think there are people who do great work for hire. You know, you're a reporter, you go write what you're writing about. You're a journalist, even you as a journalist, you've got to, I'm sure, get assigned to write things, and you write things you want to write, and it's a mixture of the two. You know, I have written on assignment myself. You know, certainly, accidentally in love is writing on assignment, for sure. That can be rewarding, too, and it's for me, it's better if it's a one-off for that sort of thing. I don't think I could write whole records for that. Got a question a little while ago about doing an adaptation of something for a musical and I I just said no because well I'd like to write for the theater I don't really want to write on assignment a movie assignment or whatever like that they're making into a play I just I'm not interested in that I don't think I would be motivated enough to do that for that reason you did say getting out of writing for say Black Sun or writing for a film gets you out of the headspace of writing normally you, you, you get to write like Mills Angels you got to write that about something that you saw you came in Sean Penn showed you the film and you wrote what was the name of the film again? Uh, the Crossing Guard. Yeah, The Crossing Guard. Yeah, I did. But it was also very personal, too. I mean, but yeah, but the fresh influx of something moving, just like seeing Dr. Zhivago, The Crossing Guard, in its original form, which is a form no one has seen it. You know, it's not, it's not in that form anymore. Uh, right, was yeah. one of the best movies I've ever seen in my life. You know, I, I watched it in a room with... I think it was me, Sean... Marlon Brando and Jack Nicholson. And Marlon Brando afterwards said, I'm not sure if I'm mixing this up. I, I, I saw the movie several times, and I'm not sure which of those times people were there. But uh, Marlon Brando said it was like the best, movie, best American film of the last 20 years, was his type take on it, I think, at the time. And it, it was a stunning work, you know, and then it went through so much stuff with. Uh, you know, it was a Miramax movie, and Harvey Weinstein was really uh, pretty brutal to Sean. Like when when I saw the movie, it was in the summer of 1994. We were on tour, that big American tour, and we were in New York. And the first time Sean showed me the movie, like at the Brill Building or somewhere in New York, and I wrote, that's when I wrote the song. The movie didn't come out for a few more years. You, you wrote those angels in the Brill Building. No, I saw the movie in the oh, drill building. I was going to say, how cool it is. Um, <laughs> I wrote... Uh, but still, the connection to the drill building is kind of neat. Well, that's where they would show movies to a lot of people. Yeah, the movie came out like a year or two later. Yeah, I remember it. I and it was it. done then. It's not like it was a big special effects extravaganza that needed like a year of post-production. It was totally finished when I saw it, except for my song. And it didn't come out for another year at least. And that song is in that film? No. It's not anymore. The movie got re-edited so many times, I finally pulled the song. We had a fight over it at one point. Yeah, it came out in November of 95, so it's like a, almost a year and a half later. It had been re-edited 19 million times, and there's a Springsteen song at the end of it now that, that Sean got Bruce to do. I wanted to use the band version because we'd recorded it by then, and Sean only wanted the demo version. And I was really afraid at the time that everyone was... The Counting Crows was becoming all about me, and I thought the work we were doing for Satellites was so good, specifically that song. And I wanted people to think of us as a band, and I was worried if it was just me on acoustic piano. It would just be too much. I was really wary of Adam Durrett's stuff. Um, 
I've said to people a million times, I never wanted to be a solo artist, and I did everything possible to avoid it, including not allowing Sean to use that song. But Harvey put Sean through hell, like a year or two of like million edits and, and like forced edits and cuts and. Uh, I can't imagine what that. I mean, it's hellscape dealing with. Sometimes with editors and publishers, not the ones that I'm dealing with now. Uh, in all due respect, but you know, but the Hollywood. You know, of course, Harvey Weinstein is not exactly the most beloved man in America right now anyway, uh, but you hear horror stories about these producers messing with your stuff, and then you have to fight and get the print. Who wants the print? Uh, you know, it goes all the way back to uh, to uh, Citizen Kane, those guys stealing it and shoving it under their shirts and running out of the, you know, to stop them from destroying the print because they hated it or it was pissing Well, them. also, it happened with the next movie he made, Magnificent Ambersons, where they did. You know, he wrote that whole movie. Yeah. And uh, it's it's a very it's a movie about this guy who becomes successful and, and his eventual the total disintegration of his person his character throughout the rest of the movie and in the end he kind of dies alone what the studio hated the ending and so they came in they they fired him off his movie and they forced the actors to come back and they did this postscript on the movie where everyone's like well, right before the character dies I think a bunch of his relatives come in and. Yeah, everything's forgiven, all's forgiven, it's okay, we love you, and the music swells, and the movie ends on this upbeat note, Which it, and you watch it, and it's one of the best movies I've ever seen. It might be a better movie than Citizen Kane. Um, and people who saw it at the time said it was, and then they re-edited it to perhaps the most ludicrous ending I've ever seen. It makes no sense on the movie. It looks completely tacked on, and what they did was they took the prints that had the original ending on them, they burned them. I was going to ask you, they don't even exist anymore. Um, no, you can't see it. It does. I just read the. I remember in film class the seeing the movie and no, and just reading the stories about what had happened because you watch it and you, and you notice Citizen Kane is famous for being one of the best movies ever made. Magnificent Ambersons is not because and and he was never allowed to direct another movie after that. He was never allowed to have control of a movie. He did some stuff where, but he's trying to do Heart of Darkness. I know. Yeah, and he, he, he kind of did Chimes at Midnight where he acts in it, but I don't think he's... He was never in charge of anything ever again after that. And instead of going... This is Orson Welles. Yeah, Orson Welles, Welles yes. yes. Instead of going down in history as one of the great movies ever made, it's, just, it's, a, it's a bastardization. And it was, of course, critically panned when it came out, I think, because the ending is so ridiculous that it invalidates the entire rest of the movie. It makes no sense. And to make sure that his movie didn't come out, because they were so sure it was a loss, they burned it. There's no going back and re-edit. There's not going to be any director's cut of that. Or there would have been. Because that's 1930-something. It's it's 80 years ago. You know? And... It says it can't. I think it was 39, 40, something like that. So I think it's 39. Because that's right, the year, great year for movies. is Citizen Kane and... Uh, Wizard of Oz. Wizard of Oz, King Kong. All a bunch of movies all came out in 1939, right. I think. But getting back to the... Uh, to the and speaking of endings. The endings... Uh, when you did the... the um, piano demo for uh for sean oh where I, I recorded it in the paramount hotel in a hotel room in the paramount one of those tiny closet rooms really yeah yeah the piano sitting on a bed how, how did you record it uh just on my like recorder? yeah i think so like a, one of those little things yeah yeah so did, did it have the um the ending the leave me leave me leave me alone ending? no uh, i don't remember it's a little it definitely no i think that was completely improvised when we did it live, which is one of the reasons I wanted to use the live version. It was so 
spectacular and, and completely improvised by all of us. And, and at that point, Ben had been in the band about four days. Yeah, Ben, Ben Mice. And uh, so he stayed with us and just played it and just nailed it. It's crazy. Yeah, it it's really makes that song. It's a beautiful song, but that, that ending part is the one that always strikes me. And, and, and you, you end up using those lyrics, uh, you know, about going outside and everything else for the ends of other songs. You threw that in there. I, I'm, I'm afraid to go Well, I think it too. was an attacked on ending from Sullivan Street or Perfect Blue Buildings that I then used for, Miller's then I used for Miller's Angels. Right. It was attacked on improvised ending. Part of it was, not the whole thing, not the leave me alone, just one of the other parts. Right, right. And, and you once told me, the very first interview you and I did in 2008, for, that would have been Saturday nights and Sunday mornings, right? Yeah. Um, I asked, one of the first questions I asked you was, I noticed on that record, there was a ton of lines that, re- that if you really, <laughs> if you're a nut like me, you would connect the dots to other songs. And I don't remember the specific ones now, but I remember you saying, of course that's going to happen because it's me and I'm going through this and but I'll say something that is in my language and it may reference something that I wrote 15, 20 years ago but it, it's not a conscious effort into connecting those two things well I think there were parts of especially uh, when I dream of Michelangelo which I began writing in 1987, 8, 9 somewhere in there and I love the story tell us and, and so parts of that song which, which I then tossed out become part of uh, Goodnight Elizabeth, uh, Queen of California, She's the King of the Rain, is in there, uh, and also uh, Angels of the Silences. I dream of Michelangelo, when I'm lying in my bed, I see God upon the ceiling, I see angels overhead. You know, that's like, so it had, it had gone into several of those songs, and Michelangelo, of course, becomes is on Sunday mornings. So I think that might have been what, yeah, the more specific that. part of it right. was that though, that's a song that I had used parts of in other songs because I wasn't, I didn't think it was a good enough song, couldn't be used. But it, and then for that record, I really went back to that song and rewrote it, and made it, finished the writing I'd never done years before. Right, it was kind of like what I was talking about with my novel in a sense because I remember you said you had this one theme in it that is in both songs, in Angels and also in um, uh, I Dream of Michelangelo. The idea of the Sistine Chapel and Adam and God very, very close to touching fingers and how that's, in a sense, and I don't, you have to pick it up from here, but it's, it's a muse and, and also trying to get to the divine and not quite getting there. It's, it's how you look at that painting. Is it, is it God imbuing Adam or is it Adam not quite being able to get to God? I yeah, that's just sort of my take on it. You know, I love that. Art and creativity are the things that the closest we come to whatever you would consider to be divinity. Like, the thing that makes God so special is that he creates something from nothing. That in the beginning there's nothing. A lot, there's just a void. And then he says, let there be light. That he makes something where there's nothing. And that most of life we don't do that. You know, but art, invention, those are the places where you make something from nothing. You know, so I was just kind of musing on that in that song. And of course you've always said that... Because one of the discussions that you and I had was, well, I think your, your, your work reads as poetry. Well, it's not poetry. It's a song. That in poetry, you're lifting up, you're trying to make it more lofty in a sense, but you're, you're ignoring the fact that melody, and again, I'm speaking for you, but I remember, it comes yeah, out but, of nowhere. But, that, the, but you're not. That's not what poets really do. That's why people who don't read poetry think. That's why people call 
great songwriters poets because they think the poetry is where you lift into the lofty. Poets are writers and they write the best of them write plain mundane words they use to say things. It's not always about making things lofty. It's about it's just about seeing the world in a different way and a way that imbues it with meaning for you as a writer and other people as readers. But it's not about lofty. It's what I think that's why I hate being called a poet. Because it, it just comes from... First of all, it's not poetry. Because pure and simple, it's not poetry. It's songwriting. Okay, poetry is a different art form. It's like saying photography is painting. No, it's not painting. Well, photography is great. Yeah, it doesn't make it painting just because it's great. Photography is photography and painting is painting. And sculpting is also neither of those two. And they're all great. And poetry is amazing and prose is too. But songwriting is a different thing. It involves melody. Which uh, comes out of nowhere. Yeah, I mean, it's just... It's a perfectly legitimate art form, songwriting, but it's its own art form. Well, yeah. the best part of songwriting is the melody in the sense where, again, that comes out of getting back to the whole making something from nothing. The melody is completely out of nowhere, where you can use words and combine them. There's some, there's some references you could use with the language, but with melody, it's a completely original language that comes directly through you. Yeah, I wouldn't say it's the best part necessarily, but I would say it's... It's the part that's derived from nothing else necessarily because you get your lyrics, you live your life, you have your day and you can, you know, some of your lyrics will come from that. But the melody, it just comes out of nowhere or wherever you stole it from, <laughs> you know, because uh, there's that too. Well, you're not giving it back. So um, stealing is probably a better word and, and everybody does it. Whether you think so or not, you probably, you know. Because you listen to all this music, you know, we listen to all this music in our lives and then we write songs and it's, it's, it's just ridiculous to think that you're not like using some of it, well, whether you think about it or not. Getting back to writing, I mean, the writers always say you steal from the best. I mean, you, you take, you know, uh, Hunter Thompson used to t- type out The Great Gatsby or, you know, The Sun Also Rises so he can feel what it's like physically to type those words onto a typewriter. And I always found that fascinating to, 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 to see how that is created. And I'm also reminded of, uh, getting back to the music, of Paul McCartney's story about, you know, waking up with yesterday and swearing for weeks someone else had wrote. It's too good. Somebody had a, he ran around playing it, does this sound familiar to you? Have you heard this before? And he was so worried that he stole that because it was so great. That's like, uh, it's funny, it's the same story with uh, Catapult, you know, we had that, uh, that melody at the beginning of Catapult on the Mellotron, and we were, you know, we recorded it early, somewhat early in the process of doing uh, uh, Recovering Satellites. And then the rest of the way through the record, we all just kept looking at each other going, is this reminding you of anything? Does it remind you of anything? It was driving us fucking crazy throughout the whole recording. It just seemed like it was something else. And then, like, right before we finished the record, Charlie comes screaming in one day. I think it was Charlie who figured it out. He's like, it's Venus and Mars. <laughs> and it's the beginning. And the funny thing is, it was exactly the melody. The, the, the first song on Venus and Mars is the song Venus and Mars. This is the Paul McCartney album. And the, the song, song Venus and Mars begins with a Mellotron line. The first song on Recovering Satellites is Catapult, and it becomes and it begins with a Mellotron line, and lo and behold, they're the same fucking line. They're exactly the same. And we were just I mean, not only are we playing the same line, but we're putting it at the same place in the record, and we're playing it on the same instrument. It was a Mellotron flute and a Mellotron flute. And uh, <laughs> when Charlie figured it out, we we're like, shit. So we changed the melody 
to a, to the melody it is now. Um, we luckily realized it before the record came out because it was, you know, and it's a different melody now, but it was the same exact melody, which is, you know, it was a total accident. It's just like, it seemed like a great melody. We had this idea. It was a great way to begin a record. And, you know, truth is we had all heard it before. I don't even remember which one of us came up with that melody, but you know, we had all heard it before somewhere, you know, and that somewhere is Venus and Mars. Paul McCartney, yeah. You know, I told Paul McCartney that story. He thought it was hysterical. He, he's like, Oh, he knew the song. He's like, Oh my God, that's, I've always thought, I've always wondered about that song. It, it always, it always reminded me of something. He was talking about catapult that he knew the song catapult and it always reminded him of something. And I was like, well, you're, you're lucky we changed it or it would have reminded you immediately of the exact same thing on your record. Um, we, we, he laughed his ass off about that when I told him, but when you told him that he didn't, he knew it reminded him of something, but he didn't know specifically it was from Venus and Mars? I don't think he did. Because it doesn't sound... It isn't the same anymore. No, no. Um, and so he would never have known that it had been exactly the same. Well, the first time you told me that story, I did play those back-to-back, the beginning parts. And it is still... It's similar. No, it's, it's definitely similar. We, yeah. we didn't change the whole thing. We changed a number of notes and the way the melody works to make it different. It's Thematically, it's still very close. It's just not the same melody anymore. But yeah, it's... Uh, you know, there was something you brought up at the beginning about... Uh, balancing people's expectations of things against what you're actually going to yes, do. Yes, I'm glad you brought that back because, go ahead, did you have something you want to say about that? Well, what were you saying? Because it made me think of something and I've been trying to remember why it made me think of it now and I realize it's because you brought up something. I'll get to what I was, what I wanted to tell you about but tell me what you were saying again because so it can remind me of why well, I me, thought this. I think when, when you and I first spoke about, I, I said that for me, it was sometimes easier. My, before my first book, when I was working on my first book, Deep Tank Jersey, which I wrote in 90, the summer of 95. And as I was writing it, I was trying to do it in a Kerouac style, which is just, you know, first thought, best thought. And I felt so free. And when I read that book now, I realize I can't write like that anymore because once you're published and people know you, you feel an expectation about an audience. Not, I'm, I don't write anything to please anyone. Of course I want people to read it and enjoy it. And I always write all my work for my wife, Erin, now, because a lot of the subjects I write about, whether it's Kiss or Warren Zevon or Jesus or what, I write about, my wife has no interest or any background on it. So I'm kind of writing it to, to get her to be, hey, you're going to like Destroyer. As I'm writing, I'm trying to convince her and, in essence, trying to convince the reader. So I want to write things that I think are... are, are, are pleasing and you want readership but I, for me it was more pressure after you had told me a story a while back and I don't know if this is where you were getting at how I said was it tougher to write after August and everything after and you said no because it was so great knowing whatever I'm writing right now is going to be on a record and possibly on the radio and I can play it live and people are going to dig it within a couple of months when well I they're going to hear it that I have a place to put all of it because you spend all this part you, I spent so I spent a decade or right. more writing songs that it was entirely possible no one was going to ever hear, you know, and then everything changed. And now I know that no matter what I write, everybody's going to hear it. So yeah, it's like, there's nothing futile about it at all. It just seems like you just want to write like crazy because, you know, everything's got a place to go, you know, which is probably why I made a double album because you know? <laughs> I was like, Hey, I just want to, I want to write lots of songs, you know? That's not what I was thinking about. What I was thinking about, we are talking about expectations and the downsides of them. The problem with, with having expectations, even as a, a fan, is that 
it's not your expectations that made you love whatever you loved in the first place. It was the work itself. And that work was an original creation by somebody that totally spoke to you. Now, the moment you burden that and weigh that with, with your expectations, you're, you're, you're fucking yourself up for the next thing. Because, I mean, you, you, ha- you already decide about what you want it to be. And so if it's not that, you're disappointed. And, and that's a waste because, well, first of all, it would be a bizarre coincidence if it was what you expected it to be. It would either be a bizarre coincidence or it would be the, the, because the artist had decided, well, that sold a lot. I should do it again. You know, and that's a huge mistake. I mean, it's exactly what the record company wants you to do. And it is what people want you to do. But even it, not even just for the artist, it's a mistake. For the fan, it's a mistake because you're losing your enjoyment of that artist's growth. Uh, it, you know, and it, what, it, what, what stuck in my mind, I was reading something. Um, sorry, no, I mean, I, I was listening to this record the other day and, and uh, thinking about, you know, Paul Simon has his career with Simon and Garfunkel. You know, after the first record doesn't do well, he goes off to England. Was it Wednesday morning, 3 a.m. is what it's called? And he goes off to England and he starts, he's living in with Richard Thompson and Sandy Denny and Nick Drake and Jackson Frank in this some house over there, or flat. Uh, and uh, then someone gets the idea that, I guess Sounds of Silence starts getting played a little bit on the radio. And someone gets the idea to like re-take uh, a, a rhythm section and, and a rock band and put it around it. And they go back and they recut it and then that, that becomes a huge hit. And that convinces Paul Simon, or he comes back and does it. And somewhere in there, either for whatever reason or not, he comes back from England and goes back to working with uh, Art Garfunkel again, as opposed to being over there doing solo work like he was doing. He actually made a, he actually made a record over there, which never got released in the States. I, I don't know it. But I think that may be where his version of Blues Run the Game is from. Um, but uh, yeah. he comes back, and then they, you know, they blow up, and they have their huge career for another six or seven years, something like that until about until 1970 or something when he, they do bridge over troubled water. And at that point, the, the restrictions of having to write for two people, Plus Art Garfunkel apparently went off to movies and that really upset. But I think they were also, that, that may have been partially because he like being second banana for a while. And sure. Paul Simon's tired of writing for both of them and having to write everything for that, you know, whatever they split up. And as it turns out, that's fine because that, Right away, Paul Simon makes one of the great records. You know that just that Paul Simon record with me and Julio, Mother and Child Reunion, Duncan. It's an incredible album, and you know, and you can hear like the guitar playing on the album on stuff like Peace Like a River or uh, Armistice Day. You know, you can just see he's been sitting over there in a cold water flat in London with Richard Thompson and Nick Drake playing guitar and Roy Harper because he's like. It's like a kind of guitar playing he hasn't been playing on Simon and Garfunkel records. It's really out there. It's really cool. It's very, it's, you know, masterful guitar playing. You know, and he has a career after that. Here comes Ryman Simon and uh, I can't remember what else. Uh, the ceiling and the floor one, the one that's got uh, Love Me Like a Rock. So that's Here Comes Ryman Simon. Oh, he starts getting into the gospel one, stuff. Yeah. And then he does uh, one of the other records in there. One Trick Pony's in there somewhere. Oh, Still crazy after all these years. Yeah, yeah right. Absolutely. Um, uh, anyways, then they do that big concert in Central Park. Which time was 
Oh, really? Yeah. Which is like hugely popular, and the live album from it is a huge. It's it's broadcast on TV all over America, and it's a great concert. It is, and everybody wants a Simon and Garfunkel record, so they're going to make a record together again. But when he goes to write it, it's it's just not it's not a Simon and Garfunkel record. And I think a year of touring and they're sick of each other again. But the songs he's writing aren't a Simon and Garfunkel record. So they've, they've sort of told the world they're going to write a Simon and Garfunkel record. And on Still Crazy, uh, along with the other hits on there, they do My Little Town, My Little Town which is the two of them together. And it's a great song. Um, but so he makes this record that ends up not being and then decides it's just not a Simon and Garfunkel record. And so they split up again and he makes the record. And it's Hearts and Bones, which is, to my mind, maybe his finest record. I mean, I, I could definitely argue for Graceland, too. Uh, um, but, like, he makes Hearts and Bones, and it is easily the most personal record he ever wrote. It's so spectacular and raw and personal as a piece of songwriting. It really is. And, uh, That's when he fell in love with Carrie Fisher. Yeah. And 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 fell in love and fell apart. The, both of it in going on at the same right? time, you know. Pull on the tracks and pull on the blonde and pull on the tracks. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's an incredible record. It really is. And uh, I'm so glad you mentioned that because that is very underrated. Nobody remembers. Well, that. it's because it's uh, it's also his biggest flop. Right. And because it, it, it is a late great Johnny Ace on Yes, oh. it's crushed under the weight of people's expectations because everyone is, wants a Simon and Garfunkel record, and not only do they not get one, but they get this intensely personal record. Um, that is, anyways, it's the, it's, it's the, 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 I think the, at the, it's the biggest flop of his career, especially because it came at a time when everyone was thinking Paul Simon, because they just did this concert. The live album is massive, massively successful. And everyone in the world wants to hear Paul Simon songs, but he doesn't give them what they want. And it's a huge flop. And he's like knocked out after that and really kind of devastated by it, I think. And I'm also trying to figure out what to write about because you, know, you make your best record and nobody cares. And in fact, they just brush it off. And, you know, then he ends up hearing a lot of, like, uh, township music and the Zydeco music. And he's listening to all this township jive and that stuff. And he that leads him to make Graceland, which has been, been the huge success, you know. And I love Graceland. And I think it's one of the best albums anyone's ever made. I think it's a great record. Sure. But it's a trap, too, because now Paul Simon's the guy who goes to work with uh, indigenous artists from different places and makes great records. Right. So the next one's got to be Rhythm of the Saints, where he goes to like Brazil and works with the drummers. And there's great stuff on Rhythm of the Saints, but that's like, now you're locked in a thing you're supposed to be doing, whereas before he's just writing songs, whatever he feels like, and, and it is, you know, like the first album has all this Jamaican stuff on it. In fact, he's doing that sort of stuff where he's like exploring different... He's been doing that in his life anyways. Absolutely. His records are explorations of all kinds of different things. But you're naturally getting him just exploring things as he wants to explore things. And then he gets to what he wants to do on this one record, which is Hearts and Bones. And it's just crushed under the weight of people's expectations for a Simon and Garfunkel album. And sometimes we do that where like we want an easy summation of what a record is. It's Paul Simon doing... Uh, South African music with South African musicians and it's great but it helps that it's got that great story for it you know but 
it's another it's a songwriter examining a deeply personal mining a deeply personal vision of what's going on in his life and what life and loss and human relationships are all about mm. <laughs> you know but, that would have been, but your point is if I'm becoming a different time Another, maybe have to, but my my point really is that like it is a, the, that expectations are a waste of time that like trying to impress people with the story behind the story only takes us away from the music it's great that Grayson has a good story but once we get used to the fact that we have to have that then it's got to be the same story in a different location for Rhythm of Saints and that's putting one of the greatest songwriters of our time in a fucking trap right it doesn't That's help him. Examples of what you're saying. The first example is we want to sign the Garfunkel record. We get this, and then he goes off and does something else. Give me more of that. Just yeah, now we want that. Thing. You have to do that every time. Right. Like you, right. and, you know, and, and as an artist, you do get like sometimes the weight of expectation and like the the confusion over what is it to be successful. Why? What? What makes me successful? Because you make this record of the most spectacular songwriting, some of the most spectacular songwriting I've heard in my entire life. And nobody gives a flying fuck. And then you make a record of, you know, the story in South Africa, and that works. Now, they're both great records. I'm not trying to degrade Graceland at all. It may be a better record. It, it certainly has that incredible What's story. But what, so does... But, but it has collaborate. They're pop songs because they're successful. Right. It also has incredible collaborations with Ladies McBlack Mombazo... And the you know the rocks and do- rock and doopsy stuff from New Orleans. No it is. It's an incredible record, but in a quieter way. So is Hearts and Bones. It just lacks the. I don't know. My point is like when you brought up the expectations thing earlier, it made me think what what a trap and a mistake they are. Not just for the artists themselves, but for the fans because they they betray you too. I mean, you may be excited to hear all the great story behind what makes. Graceland a great record but now you're locking him in a room to do a certain thing and also your expectations the fact that there is no story like that behind Hearts and Bones or the fact that there was a story about a Simon and Garfunkel record that you didn't get to have it it, it betrays you because it it takes that record away from you so no one bothers because you're not getting what you expect or not getting a great story you don't get hearts and bones at all. An album I've been listening to every few weeks for my entire life since it came out because it's so good. But nobody else heard it. And I, I go back to Graceland too, but like, you're going to get tired of Graceland at some point. Wouldn't it be great to know that you have hearts and bones too, but nobody does know that because it just got, sh- it just got crushed by the expectations for Simon and Gar. Anyways, you're right that we should play that song because it is one of my favorite. I want to talk about the record some more probably anyways after that, but, uh, yes, I want to talk about that. And also I want to talk about where Bob Dylan fits in as far as expectations and breaking those expectations and really leading many other artists that came after him in the sixties and seventies to do new music and not be the same guy. all the time. There's many examples of that. I think Dylan's a great one, but, Hearts and Bones, I'm so glad you brought this up. You and I have talked about this record before. I know how much it means to you. Uh, it's influenced you. It's inspired you. Uh, but it's also it's also great because of the fact that it just is so under the radar. You don't hear these songs that much, so when you do hear them, they really are endearing. And it has some of the more perfect lyrics I've ever listened to in my life. Yeah, Hearts and Bones itself. I mean, play that thing. That's a yeah. masterpiece. And really a story about him and Carrie Fisher. Um, here's uh, from 1983, three years before Graceland. Uh, 
This is Paul Simon, Hearts and Bones, the song Hearts and Bones. Traveling together in the sangre de Cristo In the blood of Christ mountains of New Mexico On the last leg of a journey they started a long time ago The arc of a love affair Rainbows in the high desert air Mountain passes slipping into stones Hearts and bones Hearts and bones Hearts and bones Thinking back to the season before Looking back through the cracks in the door Two people were married The act was outrageous The bride was contagious She burned like a bride These events may have had some effect On the man with the girl by his side The arc of a love affair His hands rolling down her hair Love like lightning shaking till it moans Hearts and bones Hearts and bones Hearts and bones Hearts and bones And whoa She said, why, why don't we drive through the night, we'll wake up down in Mexico, oh, why, I don't know nothing about, nothing about no Mexico, tell me why, why won't you love me? For who I am, where I am He said, cause that's not the way the world is, baby This is how I love you, baby This is how I love you, baby One half wandering Jews 
return to their natural coasts To resume old acquaintances And step out occasionally And speculate who have been damaged the most Easy time will determine If these consolations will be their reward The arc of a love affair Waiting to be restored You take two bodies And you twirl them into one Their hearts and their bones Oh, and they won't come undone Hearts and bones Hearts and bones Hearts and bones Hearts and bones Yeah, you know, what I love about his songs is how detailed they are, like, and how um, sort of, in some ways, mundane the thing he's talking about is. He's talking about people, it's not like great, like, boy meets girl, wishes he could get girl. It, it, it's about two people that that do fall in love, and then they they go on a trip, and they spend time together, and then it, it doesn't work, and they fall apart, and kind of what he's saying is it, it doesn't change anything you know like you, you mix as he says uh take two bodies and twirl them into one their hearts and their bones and they won't come undone like you know you can fall apart you're still connected you know like and i love the way he does that the, the sort of like the details he finds like she says you know uh she said why don't we drive through the night and we'll wake up down in mexico and he says, oh, I don't know nothing about nothing about no Mexico. You know, it's like, I, I don't know about that. It's just like the sort of like the avoidance response, you know. And then she says, and, and tell me why, why won't you love me for who I am, where I am? You know, she's asking all these questions about their relationship and why don't they, you know, very romantic questions. And, and he says, so she's like, tell me why won't you love me for who I am, where I am? And he says, because that's not the way the world is, baby. This is how I love you, baby. This is how I love you, baby. That's like the saddest thing in the world to say. Because like, why don't I love you the way you want me to love you? Because it ain't that way. Like, this is how I love you. And it, and, and he's admitting it's not perfect. It's not even like a, it's a sad and resigned the way he says it. This is how I love you. And it's not good enough, apparently. But this is it, you know. And and so they, they go their separate ways. As he put one and one half wandering Jews return to their natural coasts. To resume old acquaintances, step out occasionally and speculate who had been damaged the most, you know, uh, and and it just go they go their own way. But then when he comes back and says a few lines later is the arc of a love affair waiting to be restored. You take two bodies and you twirl them into one, their hearts and their bones, and they won't come undone. 
you know, that, that these things, you know, the ways in which we bind ourselves to other people, those are permanent. And they're impermanent at the same time. Like, you can love someone, but uh, you might not necessarily be able to live with them. And you may not be able to live with someone, and you may leave someone, but you're not going to be able to necessarily stop loving them. Like, there's a line... It's 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 not my. I don't really love the first song on the album, Allergies, the song before this, but there's a line in it I'm remembering right now where he says, uh, "But my heart is allergic to the women I love." You know that that he says it in a joking way, in a way, but like that's the point he's making is that there's a difference between love and what you can live with, and they're not always the same thing. It doesn't necessarily mean it, you're going to make it work, and. You know, I saw this movie the other night called Lady Bird, and uh, there's a line in it where uh, the girls... Did you ever seen that movie? No. You see it. It's, it's beautiful. It's, it's really... It's kind of about, in some way, the, like that we all live with these wells of pain inside us about the way our lives work. And if we're not careful, we, we lash out from those places because we can't help it, or because we're frustrated, or because we want something to be better for someone else. And... But we all live with these deep wells of pain and sorrow because of how our lives have turned out. And it's, you know, about a young girl who's, you know, not living in a well of sorrow yet. She's just, you know, I mean, she's not having the easiest time because her mom's not the easiest. But, like, she's talking to this nun at one point and she's talking about how her mom is just all over her all the time. And the nun says, well, she seems like she pays a lot of attention to you. She's very attentive to what's going on in your life. And she's like, well, I wish she wouldn't. Why doesn't she? I wish she would just love me. And the, and the, the nun says, you know, what's the difference between uh, loving someone and the attention you pay to someone? I mean, isn't that how we show that we love someone? Because we are attentive to their lives. Whether, you know, you not always love someone in the right way. You can be abusive, you know. But her point is that, like, all that attention she shows is the depth of her love too. And like, it, it's a, I think that that's a very interesting thing. It's easy in songs to just talk about love and it doesn't mean a whole lot, but exploring what it does actually mean is what he does on this album in a lot of really interesting ways, exploring what the connections between people mean. And he has these songs, which are about often a deep and fleeting connection, maybe like this one that will affect them for their whole lives. Or a long, long relationship, as in Renee and Georgette Magritte with their dog after the war, where it's about a long life two people live together. And it's interspersed with all these songs that seem like they're sort of shorter, more poppy songs about maybe I think too much, or cars are cars, that seem like they're uh, disposable. But in each of them, they always end up being about the way people are connected. He's talking about something else, like numbers get serious, cars are cars all over the world. But then he'll spit out a line about, you know, it's an interesting album because it's like, there's these songs, Hearts and Bones, Song About the Moon, Train in the Distance, Renee and Georgette Magritte with their dog after the war, and the late great Johnny Ace, which is about how our society and culture dealt with the death of uh, John, Lennon. John Lennon. But in each of those... It's also about how the music we're living with at that moment is affecting us and deep explorations of the connections between people. But 
then interspersed with their songs like Think Too Much B&A, Cars Are Cars, Allergies, When Numbers Get Serious, where they think they're more, they seem like more nonsense songs about him just spooling abstract ideas off the top of his head. But in each of those cases, he'll like, he'll just drop something right, right on you that's so, you know, what's the one at the end of When Numbers Get Serious? Uh, All of a sudden, you know, he's talking about these silly things. And then, wrap me, wrap me, wrap me, do in the shelter of your arms. I am ever your volunteer. I won't do you any harm. I will love innumerably. You know, uh, and then at the end of it, after all is said and done and the numbers all come home, the four rolls into three, the three turns into two, and the two becomes a one. That's how the song ends, you know, or, or uh, keeps repeating the line, cars are cars all over the world. But then it, it, it comes back and he says... Uh, I once had a car that was more like a home. I lived in it, loved in it, polished its chrome. If some of my homes had been more like my car, I probably wouldn't have traveled this far. You know, like, if I only had a home that meant as much to me, a place to be, that meant as much to me as this little thing I'm driving around in, maybe I wouldn't need to be driving around. Maybe I would have stayed home. You know, but he doesn't have that. Knowing the story about the expectations of the Simon and Garfunkel record... Hearts and Bones is, is, is a song about expectations. You have two famous people who get married, certainly Carrie Fisher because of her fame, not only of being in Star Wars, but being uh, the daughter of um, uh, Bobby Debbie Fisher. Debbie Fisher. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Debbie Reynolds and Bobby Fisher, yeah. Bobby Fisher. And that's the one and one half wandering Jews because she's half Jewish and he's Jewish. Uh, but also the idea of using the arc of a love affair. I mean, obviously, an arc goes up and then goes back down. Uh, people like to see the happily ever after concept of love where I find the person I love, we get married, and we live happily, and, and the arc never comes. It just keeps going up, 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 like we like to see the stock market or, or, or profits or, or you like to see your career or whatever. Your love affair continues, but there's an arc there. The expectations, though, of how she wants to love him, but he doesn't give it to her reminds me of what you were talking about, about the expectations of fans wanting Simon and Garfunkel, but this is what they're getting. They're getting hearts and bones. This is the record you're getting because this is what I'm creating now, which is, you know, what you were saying. Don't let the expectations get in the way. And I, and I did want, did you want to follow up on that? Keep going. Because I was going to say that uh, before we played it, uh, Dylan, famously, a million times, but the, probably the one he's not given as much credit for, as far as shift, of course, he, he became, he did the electric thing where he got booed and then he went out with the band and then he changed uh, to, to psychedelic music and then he, when everybody was doing psychedelic music, he ended up doing, you know, uh, John Wesley Harding and then he ended up doing, he became Christian for the, <laughs> I mean, he's all over the map. But the one that he's not really, that I think was the most concussive is when he did Another Side of Bob Dylan, which was his first non-protest, non-Woody Guthrie-esque non-folk record. It was just record of love songs and personal songs. And people were really, really pissed at him for that. They wanted him to be the voice of the generation. They wanted him to write songs about the civil rights movement and injustices, all the things he did beautifully on the first couple of records. Another Side of Bob Dylan is a complete right turn. That really was, people saw it as a slap in the face and a complete rejection of the one thing they thought he stood for. That, that's, a, that's an incredibly brave thing to do as an artist, but also one that shows you that the expectations... Talk about a guy who completely set them up for a career of just doing folk songs about social issues and then do another side of Bob Dylan, these songs of deep, deep emotional longing 
And other artists have gone through that as well. But I thought Bob's shift, and he's not really, you know, he doesn't, you don't read about that, but you read about his electric side or the other things I just mentioned. But that was a big, big shift for him. And uh, I think that really reflects what you were saying about the expectations, because your audience can get so big and so demanding that no matter what it is you're going through in your life or what you're trying to create as an artist, you can't, you can't do it. Yeah, and it, and it well, it, especially when Dylan came along, there were, it's the same thing, like, we're never going to have another Elvis nowadays, where, like, there's one guy who everyone is into, you know, like, it, but especially back then when there were only a few, when because you, you'd have an Elvis, and then you'd have a Dylan, and then you'd have uh, your Beatles and your Stones and your Beach Boys, you know, where, like, there's only a few bands, really, that are at that level, you know, and... And that everyone loves. There's this amazing, just everybody shoves into one corner. There's not this kind of music, that kind of... The whole youth movement is about these artists. Yeah, and, but as a result, we all get together. We love them for this right. and not for that. And if they do that instead of this, it's frustrating. But they do get... They do challenge. What was that great quote that you said? You always mentioned the, the gentleman who... Uh, who was uh, the editor for Musician, Musician Mag- Magazine, who wrote that article about you guys and uh, that, that quoted your saying that live. Um, and he, he introduced Bill Flanagan. Bill Flanagan, where he talks about the Beatles and how they challenged the yeah, audience yeah. every time. And people went with them. Yeah, they did. That was part of being a Beatles fan, which was the different from other, other musicians at that point. It wasn't about, like, get you what you did last. And part of being a Beatles fan was there was something new every time. And they trained you right away to feel that way. It's uh, it's very hard to do that. But people forget the difference between Help and Rubber Soul and then Rubber Soul to Revolver is like 10 months. <laughs> These records came out twice a year, sometimes three times a year. From, from late 1965 to 19, early 1968, the, the Beatles put out four albums that absolutely changed the entire course of Western Hemisphere pop culture. <laughs> In like 10 months. And that, yes, is never happening again. I don't care if it's... Whomever, you know, and maybe it's just because we look at it, we put it in a museum now, but that is a singular event, a singular event that is very, very hard to recreate. And people had to go along with it. Or, you know, they, they, they almost had to because you could not listen to what the Beatles were doing. It was absurd to think about it. You couldn't be outside that circle. They, they created their own circle and then played whatever they wanted within that circle. It's a very unique uh, thing. They were the only band... I think even when they had backlashes like Magical Mystery Tour, and some people were, were, were a little put off by the White Album because it was like, what, what did people say? It's four solo albums with the band playing as the background. People still came along. I mean, they were all there. They were still at the top of their game. Sort of, although at that point, John Lennon's having a lot of problems with the, with the, with the heroin, um, which is holding him back a bit, um, at least in his mind, I think. Uh, I don't want to. I don't want to stray away from the Paul Simon thing right now. No, I want to come back to it because there's a really interesting thing going on in this record where he's writing these songs that are about. Parts Yeah, where he's writing these songs that are about the reasons people love each other, and the facts that people love each stories about people who love each other, and then just the banal, mundane ways in which they fall apart, and and exploring the reasons why those things are. You know that like. You know, he starts training in the distance with the line, um, she was beautiful as southern skies the night he met her, uh, which is just, it's such a romantic line, you know. Uh, 
you know, and it's about a, people that fall in love. Uh, they should probably they have an affair. They fall in love. They have children, and and then he has that the great line in this. It's in this song. Um, Negotiations and love songs are often mistaken for one and the same. Mm-hmm. Talking about people who like just all the ways the disagreements that start. It's as simple as just disagreeing over things, and it makes things fall apart. And as he puts it, two disappointed believers, two people playing the game. Negotiations and love songs are often mistaken for one and the same. You know that it's a very famous line of his. You know that, that in the end of this song, after things fall apart, you know they try and stay together for the child. They try and stay friends for the child, but things fall. Even as they still care about each other, and as he says at the end of the song, you know everybody loves the sound of the train in the distance. Everybody thinks it's true, which is a kind of a romantic image. But he says, what's the point of the story? What information pertains? The thought that life could be better is woven indelibly into our hearts and our brains. And that's a sort of summary of it. Why do we do this? Over What's the importance? Why am I telling you a story about two people that like fell in love, got married, had children, and then just in one mundane way or another just drifted apart even though they still care about each other? Because it's the hope. It's the part that part of being a human being is the thought that life could be better. And it could be better with you. You know, the, that's the last line in the song. The thought that life could be better is woven indelibly into our hearts and our brains. You know, the idea that there's a... People are like minds of possibility. You know, they're like... You, you go through your life wishing everyone, wishing there was more to it, wishing there was a happier thing... A, a less lonely day, that there was love that felt good. And there are ways you get what you want, a good job, a, a scheme that gets you rich. You get lucky in the stock market and you get some of the things you want. But the real possibilities are all in other people. That's what I mean. Like People are like, we mine them for hope. Like, other people are where all the possibilities and all the hope in your life lie. You know, like you find another person, there's nothing that seems more hopeful than the feeling when you fall in love. I mean, you can, getting a job, you can buy a stock, you can gamble. There's all kinds of hope and dreams that, to get what you want, to buy a pool, to buy a bigger house, to get a fast car, whatever they are. But nothing compares to all the possibilities that reside in another person. Like that's where you really... It's just a part of human nature to like the thought that life could be better is woven indelibly into our hearts and our brains. You know, that's like, that's why you do it. And he drops it in the last line of the song. He just sort of drops it off at the end. After talking about it, how everybody loves a train in the distance, everybody thinks it's true, which is that that romantic image of possibilities fading off, you know, coming to us or fading away, that you can write songs about things, you can write songs about possibilities. They're romantic too, just like trains are. Songs are romantic and trains are romantic, but like, on this album at least, he off, he writes these songs that begin and end. You know, that they, they begin with things that come together, then they fall apart. And he keeps, as the question he keeps asking is, why do we do this over and over again? When it, it often ends up this way. Renee and George, I agree, is different. They live a long life together. But even that life, they're going to die. you know. And, and it, often in the record, he relates it to music. A lot of it is the doo-wop music of the 50s, a time when uh, there's a real romanticism to radio in the 50s when white people would you know, 
these big, massive AM radio stations that existed. So, like, the entire Midwest was, you know, could listen to in Kansas City that broadcast over 1,000 miles. And you could reach it just atmospherically through the atmospheric luck. After a certain amount of time, because the other radio stations, the lower ones, would shut down. Yeah. And these radio stations in St. Louis and Kansas Kansas City and Chicago would just go out from both coasts. And people, yes, that, that's a big part of... And the music they played all night long was the music that your parents didn't listen to right. often. It was these, like, you know, in, in Renee and Georgette McGrady, it's like the Penguins and the Moon Glows and the Orioles and the Five Satins. He keeps bringing up these doo-wop bands right. that would make this, like, ethereal, unbelievably beautiful music uh, that was somewhat forbidden because it was made by black people. You know, and the, and that you would listen to in the middle of the night, and when romance is, you know, when you hear trains in the distance, when things like that matter, when it's the, because you hear trains during the day, but they're not the only sound, but at night they're the only sound. Right. Um, I want to play train in the distance because well, yeah. I um, was going to say just an addendum to that reminds me so much of uh, George Lucas's film uh, American Graffiti, the idea of the Wolfman Jack at night being the soundtrack to everything that's going on, but not being part of it, but being part of it. And that idea, like pirate radio uh, in England, where they would have these pirate radio stations that played off in these, uh, you know, aside from the BBC, out in these these uh, these boats that, that they weren't, you know, regulated. That was a place. Nighttime radio was a place that people could hear the music that was not being played in the daytime or on regular radio. And that is so true. And that is really the birth of rock and roll. People will say, you know, they do it because it's uh, Alan Freed, but the but why is the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in Cleveland? And maybe because they bid the highest and because they needed something in Cleveland for people to show up for. But really, that whole area, that whole Rust Belt, that whole area of America had these radio stations that everybody could hear and heard the songs that nobody was listening to. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a pretty powerful thing. It is. This is Train in the Distance. Paul Simon. <laughs>
Everybody loves the sound of a train in the distance. Everybody thinks it's true. Everybody loves the sound of a train in the distance. Everybody thinks it's true. Two disappointed believers, two people playing the game. Negotiations and love songs are often mistaken for one and the same. Now the man and the woman they remain in contact. Let us say it's for the child. With disagreements about the meaning of a marriage contract, conversations hard and wild. But from time to time, he just makes her laugh. She cooks a meal or two. Everybody loves the sound of a train in the distance. Everybody thinks it's true. Everybody loves the sound of a train in the distance. Everybody thinks it's true. What is the point of this story? What information pertains? The thought that life could be better is woven indelibly into our hearts and our brains. on the soles of his shoes and there's a little bit of phrasing in Hearts and Bones that kind of 
it reminds me of going to Graceland, Graceland, about the, you know, going with his son in the car. He's with his son in that one, and he's with, you know, his, his lover in the other one. And there's there's some things that you can almost see he's building towards that musically. I, I think, I, I don't think he was doing it consciously, but I hear it now that we have uh, the um, hindsight of both those records and how he was led from this record into that one. Assuming that the fact that this was a flop and everybody wanted Simon and Garfunkel, that didn't completely throw him for a loop where he ran to a different kind of style of music, he might have been headed that direction anyway. Well, he's playing with some of that anyways on Here Comes Ryman Simon. He's There goes Ryman Simon. I mean, he's got the, the gospel stuff. He's, he's playing with the Dixie Hummingbirds on that, you know. He's doing some of that stuff. He's always been sort of fascinated with that kind of yeah. vocal stuff. Yeah, he, he does a couple of those things with uh, Cecilia, you know, and uh, even before it's not a conference stuff, it's quite a few different styles on that record. You don't hear as much of it on this record, or it's it's a little more, the guitar playing is a little more part of the, uh, it's, 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 it's more locked down inside the rest. It's not as, his particular acoustic guitar playing isn't sticking out as much in its brilliance because it's, it's more part of the whole on this record. On the first solo record, you really get to hear a lot of that, how he's, pl- you know, his playing. It's... Well, you mentioned Duncan before, which I think is another song that's completely underrated. You know, oh, yeah. You know, for, and, and listen, it's hard when you've written so many brilliant songs uh, to, to, for people to put a spotlight on all of them. But I think Duncan is one of those ones that is not wrote. It's not, it, you know, it doesn't really, uh, it doesn't have a, a, a chorus that you could sing along to. It's just a beautiful little story and... It shows a great side. That's why that's an excellent solo album. Because it's almost like all the songs that Paul Simon wanted to write about that he wasn't able to write about as a member of Paul Simon and Garfunkel. And people forget, obviously, they're one of the great duets in the history of rock and roll music, you know, the Everly Brothers and, and many others. But they were like the Beatles, babe. They were huge for like two or three years. They were huge. Oh, yeah, more than two or three. They're, they're huge for a while in there. But also... I, I, I think one of the things about Duncan that's important is that's the it's the first moment you get to hear him writing the kinds of songs that he's writing later yes. that, that that make up Hearts and Bones are really you know Duncan is the beginning of that it's a, it's a it's an epic it's it's a, storytelling it's a, it's one long story there's no chorus like you said it, it's just a, it's a piece it's like a Dylan song in that sense that doesn't have a chorus although his more often have the line at the end of the verse that, that is the chorus, like, oh, Tangled Up in Blue, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, he doesn't have that on this one. Although there's that one little cool part that has the flute and the... It, it, where it goes with that thing, which could have been a chorus, but it's, it's a refrain. Da, da, ba, da, da, da. Yeah, yeah, I know it's what you're beautiful. talking about. Yeah. I guess we have to play that now. All right, well, this is, uh, from, this is 1971. 1972, I think. Uh, from the album, Paul Simon, this is... Uh, This is Duncan. Couple in the next room Bound to win a prize They've been going at it all night long Well, I'm trying to get some sleep But these motel walls are cheap Lincoln Duncan is my name And here's my song Here's my song My 
My father was a fisherman, my mama was a fisherman's friend, and I was born in the boredom and the chowder. So when I reached my prime, I left my home in the Maritimes, headed down the turnpike for New England, sweet New England. In the knees of my jeans, I was left without a penny in my pocket. Ooh, I was about destituted as a kid could be, and I wished I wore a ring so I could hock it. I'd like to hock it. The young girl in the parking lot was preaching to a crowd. Singing sacred songs and reading from the Bible. Well, I told her I was lost, and she told me all about the Pentecost. And I seen that girl was the road to my survival. Same night when I crept to her tent with a flashlight and my long years of innocence ended. Well, she took me to the woods, saying, "Here comes something, and it feels so good." And just like a dog, I was befriended. I was befriended. Oh, oh, what a night! Oh, what a garden of delight! Even now, that sweet memory lingers. I was playing my guitar, lying underneath the stars, just thanking the Lord for my fingers, for my fingers. It's, uh, you know, I thought of during that song, there's just something about being younger. I mean, he's 30 when he, when, when, 
he's probably younger when he writes it, but he's 30 when that record comes out, maybe 31. And there's no way of avoiding the knowledge that comes with like a longer life, you know, that like the things begin and they end and it happens over and over again. You know, that the, there's a hope and a joy in, I mean, partially is I'm sure he's just, he's free from Art Garfunkel at that moment and free from being Simon and Garfunkel and pressure and just free to be himself, you know, for the first time in a while. But the songs, you know, he's talking about like, Oh, what a night, you know, I crept to her tent with a flashlight and my long years of innocence ended. It's just, he's jokingly talking about sex and love and just what it feels like to feel good and play guitar, you know, and there's a freedom in that. Uh, and you, you can't avoid living longer and realizing that things start and things end. And you make records that mean the world to you and people cheer you for them. And you make records that mean the world to you and people don't give a shit about them. And that you love people and you can't live with them, that you can be allergic to the people you love. Your heart can be allergic to the people you love, that you'll cheat and they'll cheat and you'll have children and you'll make these bonds and you won't be able to live together and you'll have to go apart and you'll still be forever bonded to these people that like, you know, there's a, there's a reason that people make different kinds of records in their fifties and their forties, you know, that like, there's a reason that Springsteen writes born to run and wild, the innocent when he's 23 and 20, 24, 25. And that he writes, uh, and then he writes the river and then he writes Nebraska. And then he writes, you know, born in the USA and records that are entirely darker and about, a you know, still a, a realistic look at life and not without hope and beauty, but like they're composed of a perspective of beginnings and endings and the inevitability of those things that it's not all about doesn't matter all the hopes and the magic that exists in the middle of the night and the romance of a train in the distance it's still going to become mundane whatever you fall in love to to the sound of that train is going to become a daily occurrence at some point and at some point it will be painful wordless and painful and old as as robin hitchcock put it you know you know, that, that you can write a song like Duncan then, but it's going to become Hearts and Bones or Train in the Distance later because you're going to live the rest, another 20 years. And in those 20 years, you will experience uh, different Family, things. Heartbreak, uh, aging, uh, disappointments. Just, uh, just the banality also, the mundane banality of life that it just... It's inevitable and unavoidable that things are just a series of days, you know, and like you just can't help writing those songs at some point because they are what your life has gone to, you know. Sure. There's no way of avoiding that. It's funny how you mentioned that about him being young and it's his first solo album, and of course, by that point, he was one of the biggest stars on the planet, as we mentioned before, and one of the biggest groups or duos. And he writes a song, really, a teenage song. I mean, he even refers to himself as a kid and, and makes something mystical and magical about having no money in a shitty hotel, meeting some girl, and she just... She, it, it's, it's clearly a one-night stand, but he finds... He gives... It's like he finds the, the pearl of life, as Kerouac called it, in, in her, 
And yet he's in the same song, he's saying, I wish I had a ring so I can hock it. <laughs> I got nothing, nothing, but I have everything. So he's able to take Mundane at 30 or 29, or writing as a kid, uh, like a Holden Caulfield character at 18, defiant and, and open and wide-eyed in life. And then later on in Hearts and Bones, a man who has experienced many, many things, many, the arc of love. He's talking about, hey, I know this thing's going up, but it's also coming down. Duncan doesn't know that. He thinks everything's on a way up. He has to go on a way up because he's got nothing. I think that's a great way to say that. That's fantastic songwriting, wonderful storytelling. And as a writer, that lyrically, I think Paul Simon's very underrated. He's mostly known for both lyric and, and song, but great melodies and songs everybody can sing to, and uh, songwriter, songwriter. But lyrically, he really does hit a lot of bells. I want to play a couple other things on this record because there's a... Like I said, I think he's underappreciated for his guitar playing because right. they because he doesn't show it very much, and he and he often uh, puts it in the service of songs that are really beautiful. But it's a it's a part of the whole in the song. But on this first album, there's quite a few moments where he really let it stick out in ways, and you could tell, you know, uh, just the 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 wild skill. Um, the, the two songs that occur there. Uh, it's Armistice Day and Peace Like a River are the two songs. I'm just going to play them in a row because I, I love these both these songs as well for the compositions. But the guitar playing that goes on in them just knocks me out completely. I'm assuming that's him playing both guitar parts and even something like Julio, which is a popular song and very simple. You know, the, the oh, I think little it, guitar parts that come in. Yeah, the, I'm sure that's all him. I would I assume it is anyways. But yeah. um, these ones, I'm certain they're him because he's, you know, yeah, these are it's just solo guitar and a lot of it. Anyway, this is Armistice Day, and then we're going to play Peace Like a River. On Armistice Day, the Philharmonic will play, but the songs that we sing will be sad. Shuffling brown tunes, hanging around. Excuses were made when I needed a friend, she was there. Thank you. 
congressman, but he's a boy to me. Weary from waiting down in Washington, D.C. Man, I've waited such a long time, about waiting all I can. Oh, Congresswoman, won't you tell that Congressman?
That's one, of, that's one of my favorite Paul Simon songs. Uh, uh, just, but the virtuosity of his acoustic guitar playing on that and on, on uh, Armistice Day are just... You know, and, and the unstructured nature, especially of Armistice Day. I mean, these are the kind of things that it, it can't be a Simon and Garfunkel record. There's things on there that can, you know, like you could see Mother and Child Reunion, I guess, could be. Although it's, it's, I could hear uh, Garfunkel singing on Duncan. They're not those two songs, for sure. Yeah, I mean, on, even on Duncan, it would have to be on the uh, just that instrumental part that, like, that you. Yeah, yeah but yeah. that doesn't need that there. It's like it, not on the verses because it's important that he be solitary. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, it sort of matters that he's alone. Yeah, that's very um, or I think uh, Phil Ramone is an engineer on this record. Oh, okay. The other engineer is Roy Halley, and Roy Halley. I think co-produces it with yeah, Paul he Simon. Yeah, the first couple. And then I yeah. think uh, uh, after that, Phil Ramone produces uh, the live album, and then he goes on to produce uh, Crazy. Uh, yeah, that first live album, the live Ryman one, the one that comes after fantastic. Here Comes Ryman. Yeah. there's a version of Duncan that everyone should listen to when you're done with this podcast on that. The whole record is great. Yeah. This record really knocks me out. That the, the, the vocals on Mother and Child Reunion, the background vocals, those women, uh, it's, it's Sissy Houston is one of them. Which is uh, Whitney Houston's mom, mom right. who's also a background singer for uh, Aretha. It's funny how we started off this podcast talking about expectations. <laughs> well, my expectation is that we should end this podcast soon. <laughs> and that I'm sure anybody's expectations wouldn't be that you and I were sitting here listening. That's what the great thing about this. If I may say, with us mining our way through Paul Simon's career backwards, by the way. Gonna, we're going to take him out on a song, though. But I, I, I know the expected one will be me and Julio, but my real favorite off this record, the one that I listened to my entire childhood over and over and over again, is Mother and Child Reunion. Song about, it, it opens, it's an incredibly joyous song about the death, about deaths in the family, I think. And uh, maybe the first real exploration, you know, Paul Simon's famous for mining other cultures and examining other cultures and finding them musically. And this, he goes down to Jamaica and records this song. Uh, and it's just a magnificent song. Weird structurally in that it starts on the chorus. Yes. And then and then uh, comes into the verses, but it actually begins on the chorus. You have to write a really, really good chorus to pull that off. Mm-hmm. And this is as good as they come. Yeah. So anyways, along with Sissy Houston, Whitney's mom, and some other singers, uh, this is from Paul Simon's first solo, well, his 1972 album, Paul Simon, right after the record he made after Bridge Over Troubled Water, this is Adam Duritz. I'm here with my friend. James Campion, I hope we have met your expectations. And, yeah, and we got to sign off. This is the Underwater 
uh, Sunshine. I hope you enjoyed this podcast that went on seemingly forever. Um, and we're going to say goodnight with uh, Mother and Child Reunion. Peace. Strange.